Tina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. It is the holiday season here. Welcome into Legal Face Off on WGN and WGNRadio.com. The turkeys will be sliding out of the ovens relatively soon, and the Legal Eagles are here. Rich Linkoff on Tina Martini. Legal Eagles, welcome to your own show. How's it going? It's going great. Can't wait for in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> and Rich looks very excited. I picture, figure Rich putting that nice big apron on and getting the electric <laughs> knife and, and carving in. Is that accurate, Rich? Absolutely. Although, you know, I celebrated my Thanksgiving back in October the way Canadians intended it. So this is just another Thursday for me. So there's plenty to get to per usual legal face up. We'll talk about the Trump campaign lawsuit in Pennsylvania very quickly. Uh, we'll also get to Trump pardoning himself. We'll talk about the Supreme Court under Joe Biden and also a virtual legal clinic in the Asian community in Chicago, plus the legal grab bag at the end of the show. But joining us to lead things off, he is Mark Aronchuk, a shareholder at Hangley, Aronchuk, Siegel, Pudlin and Schiller. And he was in the trenches literally within the last couple of weeks against Rudy Giuliani and company. Mark, welcome to the show. Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. And my Thanksgiving, by the way, was helping carve up Rudy Giuliani's arguments in court. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really looking forward to our conversation. So, Mark, over the weekend, federal judge Matthew Braun dismissed the lawsuit brought by President Trump's campaign that sought to block the certification of Pennsylvania's election results. Judge Braun wrote that Trump's campaign had used strained legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations. You argued the case against the president's efforts. Were you surprised how definitively the judge ruled? I wasn't surprised at all. Uh, He's an excellent judge. Uh, He had no other way to go because I was dumbfounded by the frivolousness of the arguments Mr. Giuliani was presenting. Mark, uh, this was the first time that Rudy Giuliani has appeared in court representing a client in 30 years. And by all accounts, it showed, right? The time did not serve him well because uh, from all reports, we want to hear from you because you were there. It was a mess. Um, You know, he called the case voter fraud and then said it wasn't voter fraud. He fumbled to remember names, including referring to you as that man who was very angry at me. Uh, He tripped over basic points of legal procedure. He mistook the word opacity for its opposite meaning. Uh, He said, oh, those are just big words, Your Honor. It just sounds like a mess. So please, I mean, I'm sure you expected some of that going into the arguments, but I have to believe that even you were surprised at the performance of uh, Rudy Giuliani. Okay, so here's here's what it was like. Uh, we expected uh, some real legal arguments about a complaint that was in front of a federal judge. And Mr. Giuliani came in with an expanded version of a press conference he had given on a driveway in front of the total <laughs> landscaping Four Seasons, uh, meaning a landscaping company uh, that was next to a porn shop the week before. And, you know, there he was just just unhinged at the press conference. But we thought, well, all right, he's going to come in and actually present some legal arguments because he actually is a lawyer. No, he doubled (laughs) down. He was uh, this conspiracy. Then it just kept growing the more he talked. It was it was uh, every Democratic city or many of them, 10 states. Uh, it involved 
uh, untold numbers of election workers and mayors. He even referred to some of the Philadelphia election workers as part of a mafia cabal. Uh, it just went off the rails. So my job here was I was not going to let him do that. I represent patriots, the people that ran this election. They're the public servants. They were great. They were working in a pandemic. They were trying to get this election done and counted for the American citizens. So he wasn't going to get away with that with me. And then I had to get back to the legal arguments, rebutting nothing. I mean, there was really nothing he was presenting. and But it was set up beautifully because then the judge sort of bore in and said, OK, yeah, Mr. Giuliani, uh, what standard uh, of review should I be exercising here? He goes, the normal one. No. Whatever that means. Uh, then then he, he says, well, do you really want me to disenfranchise 670,000 voters? He goes, no, actually, I want you to disenfranchise a million and a half voters. Well, actually, all the voters. Huh. Uh, you know, so this this became really weird. And the part of the judge's opinion I like the best is when he referred to the complaint as a Frankenstein monster that they had stitched together and that had no sense under uh, legal precedent. So was I surprised that the judge did this? No, I, 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 I honor the judge for doing this. I thought it was important to clear out the fog machine altogether. So, Mark, there was the crazy press conference on Friday. One of the attorneys, Jen Ellis, called the team an elite strike force. In 2016, Ellis called then-candidate Trump an idiot and a bully. Another member of the team, Sidney Powell, made conspiratorial claims about Cuba, China, Venezuela, and George Soros interfering with the election. Two days later, she was fired. On one of the weekend shows, Trump advisor Chris Christie called Trump's legal team a national embarrassment. Given how much support the president still has, why is it so hard to get a respected team of serious lawyers to represent him in court? Okay, let me uh, let me offer a slightly different view on that. Uh, we have been dealing. I represent the the government entities here, the counties that counted the election, and in other cases, I also represented the the Commonwealth and the Secretary. Uh, so, government entities, bipartisan, uh, I, I mean nonpartisan, better word. Uh, government officials want to just get the job done and get it done right. So, what I was seeing was litigation that started during the primary against the mail-in voting all the way through the general, maybe 15 pieces of litigation. In truth, the original lawyers that were bringing the cases are very good lawyers, and they were very respected lawyers and from very good law firms and people who I respect. Uh, so as it evolved, those lawyers seemed to be dropping out. I don't know exactly what happened over there. They were withdrawing. And even then, there were some very good lawyers from Pennsylvania that uh, were entering the case, people who I respect. Uh, so where I, where I really want to focus my answer to your question is about Mr. Giuliani and whatever it, this national team that he's working with, and not the Pennsylvania lawyers who showed up at various times during the case. Now, I don't know why Mr. Giuliani selected or had the particular people he called a strike force. I do know this. When I was involved in 2000 in the Bush and Gore uh, uh, litigation down in uh, Florida, I had a, I had a role in, in some of that litigation. Both sides had the very best lawyers you could find. Uh, both sides did. And 
I can't imagine why Mr. Giuliani couldn't reach out to other lawyers, particularly some that had come and gone in the Trump administration. And if, you know, there were times in the, in the Solicitor General's office, Justice Department, lawyers that extraordinarily good lawyers. They came, they went. I don't know, but that would be a really interesting question to figure out at some point. Mark, last question. Um, of course, predictably, Trump tweeted right after the decision that, you know, this is more example. This is a further example of the media and the bias against him. And he called the judge, you know, uh, an Obama appointee, which he was. But he, he forgot to mention that Judge Brand uh, was a member of the an active member of the Federalist Society, very conservative judge, member of the active member of the NRA. Um, the Third Circuit has expeditiously picked up the appeal. Uh, to your earlier point, do you think now that the case is on appeal, some other more capable attorneys than Rudy Giuliani will pick up the president's fight as it goes forward? Well, uh, let me say a couple of things. First, uh, it's deplorable, the attacks on federal judges because they go the wrong way. We have a great independent judiciary and, and we operate under the rule of law. And that was deplorable. Number two, Judge Brand, I know this uh, personally, was uh, put on, the, uh, was chosen for the bench by Senator Toomey at a time where the Casey and Toomey senators were splitting up some of the appointments. So he, he might have been appointed under President Obama, but he was chosen by Senator Toomey, uh, who came out in strong defense of, of uh, Judge Brand, as he should have uh, the day after. Uh, number three, Ms. Giuliani signed the notice of appeal. Uh, we're filing briefs uh, at in a couple of hours in the Third Circuit. Mr. Giuliani is still appearing to be the lead lawyer on the notice of appeal. I will see what the Third Circuit does. And as we move along, uh, there is a Pennsylvania firm uh, that also signed on uh, good lawyers. But Mr. Giuliani still seems to be the one in charge. And, we, and uh, you know, to be continued because we have to hear from the Third Circuit. Mark Aronchik is a litigator, founder and chair emeritus at Hangley, Aronchik, Siegel, Pudlin and Schiller and also a graduate University of Chicago Law School. Mark, when you get back to the Windy City, please look us up, will you? I absolutely will. I love the place. Thanks for your time. Thank you. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, Contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Joining us now on Legal Faceoff to talk about Trump and the potential pardoning that he might do to himself is Harry Littman, an attorney at Constantine and Cannon, the host of the Talking Feds podcast. And Harry was also the former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania, former deputy assistant attorney general, former Justice Kennedy clerk, and currently of counsel, like we said, with Constantine and Cannon. Harry, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. 
All right. So uh, Trump, who just did a press briefing a couple of minutes ago, but of course didn't mention the salient topics that we're covering today. Back a couple of years ago, tweeted, uh, I wondered if he could self-pardon himself for some of the crimes that he's been alleged to um, take part in both during and before his presidency. Um, You know, it's been adjudicated by the Justice Department back in the Nixon era In essence, they said that a president cannot act as both judge and jury and therefore cannot self-pardon himself. But this question is coming up again because in a few weeks, if all goes as planned, he'll be out of office and facing potentially multiple criminal actions, both in New York, as we've seen the DA pursuing uh, some actions and also the federal level. So talk to us about whether a president can really self-pardon himself. Right. And when Trump tweeted, it wasn't it wasn't with a question mark. He emphatically said, of course, he has the the power to do it. It's a very rich question uh, and it hasn't been adjudicated where it needs to be, which is in the courts, because no one's ever tried it. And I think that would be what would happen here. I mean, it's possible that um, Nixon actually just cut out that sentence. I think that that's how it would work here, because before you could figure it out, The Justice Department would have to indict Trump. And it seems unlikely to me, both because Biden will want to portray himself as a healer. We're talking about a lot of turmoil. The election showed still pretty strong Trump constituency in the country. Uh, That's for starters. And he knows there's this sort of off ramp in New York. Um, But it's a question that scholars have gone both ways on because the Constitution states the power in broad terms. But as you say, uh, the Department of Justice and others, I'd be among them, have concluded that it it would just violate a kind of cardinal principle of, of American law, which is you can't be a judge in your own cause. So the same section includes the phrase accepting cases of impeachment, and obviously Trump was impeached. So again, with the backdrop of what you just mentioned about why Biden may not want to go down this route, how does that affect his power to self-pardon? It seems to me that it should actually lean much more in the direction of what you're saying. Um, but others have come out in the other on the other side of this. I agree. But that little phrase, except in cases of impeachment, has to be taken as evidence of of just what you are saying and and what I'm asserting, because it obviously means he doesn't have all encompassing power. Here's a situation where uh, you're actually told the president's power is cut short. And it's specifically in in a time where uh, he or she might have been charged already. So that's something that people who are for the he cannot uh, pardon himself school uh, would point to. And then otherwise, you know, there's this threshold question. What's a pardon anyway? Uh, it sounds broad, but a pardon, I think we normally consider to be something that a person of power extends to a third person a kind of grant of mercy. And this is the, you know, the coming back at you. And and that seems to kind of stumble out of the gate. But I, but I want to say no less a personage than Chicago legend Richard Posner, judge of the Seventh Circuit, says it's so broad he should be able to pardon himself. So, uh, you know, I'm I've got formidable opposition here. Harry, it should be noted importantly that we're talking again as a reminder of federal a federal pardon that would not affect 
some of the state prosecutions. Again, New York is already uh, investigating Trump and the Trump organization. A couple of questions that are interesting that I've heard talked about is, number one, whether the pardon power under Section 2 applies to a corporation. Uh, can Trump, even if he doesn't pardon himself, can he pardon the Trump organization? And number two, um, again, some of these theories seem you know, out there, but you never know with Trump that maybe he uh, steps aside and lets President, Vice President Trump become president, uh, Vice President Pence become president temporarily to pardon Trump on the way of office. I mean, again, these are things that you never would think of, but in a Trump, yeah. you know, in the waiting days of we, Trump. We, we, yeah, we stopped thinking about the things <laughs> we would never think of because they always happened. Um, that, that, that second one is a really interesting turn of events because it does seem like that would be a cute way around a self-pardon um, problem. For all we know, that happened with Nixon and Ford. It could well have been a deal, and it's a good illustration of what I was saying up front, which is we may never know, because unless it's served up to the courts, there's no definitive answer. Uh, and it may be in 1974 it happened, but the, the Justice Department didn't take the huge step, uh, which, is, which is the same step it would have to take here, of initiating a prosecution against a former president and the former president would answer immediately, I got this part in here, and only then would the issue be joined. So I, I think it won't happen. And then back to New York, as you say, that's that's a fairly ripe, it's been going on for a while. It's why the, the Supreme Court had the case that permitted uh, Cyrus Vance to get his tax records. He will have them shortly. And he's already made clear that it's a wealth of offenses, not just the, uh, the, the original offense here is the, say, is the Stormy Daniels uh, shenanigans and some falsifying that was done there. That would be the allegations. And he's made clear, though, it goes more broadly. So that's the one that Trump, if if people are really thinking, you know, he might be in pinstripes, they would be New York pinstripes. <laughs> so, Harry, last question is former U.S. attorney for Western District of Pennsylvania. What do you think of all the uh, developments, including um, Sunday's dismissal by Judge Brand and then yeah. the decision by the Third Circuit to take it up on that very narrow issue? Yeah. Wow, you've been you've been following this carefully, Tina. I'm impressed. What do I think? I you know I'm writing a piece. Uh, I'm I'm the I, I'm the legal affairs editor. I mean a columnist for the L.A. Times, and my Thanksgiving piece, uh, which will will drop on Thursday, is uh, a, a note of, of thanks and gratitude that the uh, federal courts have stayed largely independent, never went into the tank for him. So I was. Um, Gratif well, gratif but I wasn't gratified. I was impressed that he was so definitive about it. It would have been a travesty if he went the other way. But uh, Giuliani waltzed into court with such kind of braggadocio. And uh, you uh, if, if that had if that had actually snookered the court, that would have been a sad day. But the, the, in this last couple of weeks, the president was two and 34 around the, the country. And it, that's how as it should have been. He spent a few years saying things in public, but never having to really put them to the test in court, where if you're raw, if you're have nothing to say for yourself, you could be sanctioned. And uh, that proved to be the crucible that made the truth out. 
And the judge in Pennsylvania made that pretty clear. Harry, just we, we have a couple more minutes. I just wanted to take advantage yeah. of this for well, to follow up on that. I mean, you know, we, we've seen legal dream teams for, you know, Bush right. v. Gore and the O.J. Simpson trial and some really high profile cases over the years. And you look at the, you know, legal team that Trump has put together and it's slowly falling apart. I mean, quickly falling apart. Quickly falling apart. You see how Giuliani was excoriated in court, right? I mean, the first time he's represented someone in 30 years, didn't understand some of the legal jargon. He said it was big words. He mistook his opponent for another person. Um, you know, uh, just by all accounts, was a legal uh, uh, mess in court. Why do you think, I think the answer is, you know, from your perspective, you think these cases are meritless. But inevitably, there are some lawyers out there who are capable practicing lawyers who believe in the case. Where are they? Why can't? Yeah, I'm not sure together? there were. On my podcast this week, uh, we do sidebars and I got the uh, just uh, explanations of basic terms. And I got the opponent of Giuliani in court to come do an explanation of this basic levels of scrutiny that he whiffed on. I think it's, there are two things. One, he can't get other people. Firms don't want to represent him. They, they Even their corporate clients, but certainly their individual clients, object. Uh, and he lives in this alternate universe, or at least he professes it, and he only wants to hear from lawyers who will tell him what uh, that that he's right. But then, of course, they have to troop off to, to court and, and he's been wrong all the time. But he has this sense, I think, of being besieged and beleaguered. And this is the sort of last loyal soldiers for him, Jenna Ellis, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. And as you say, I. It was embarrassing. I don't want to make even too big a point of it. But on objective terms, these are third, fourth rate lawyers. And we're talking about the president of the United States in, in rather august uh, legal principles. And he had nobody. That's actually been true all the way through. The people he's had very unimpressive uh, counsel represented him all these years. But he's been able to kind of get a, a elude judicial accountability. He is Harry Littman, attorney at Constantine and Cannon. And check out the podcast, Talking Feds, wherever you listen to your podcast. Harry, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Fun to be here. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. 
In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. You can like Legal Faceoff on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And if you like what we do, please rate and review the show after you consume it. Joining us now on Zoom, Ian Gershengorn, chair of the Jenner and Block Appellate and Supreme Court Practice, also former acting solicitor general and former clerk to Justice Stevens, and the former voice of the Harvard basketball team back in the day. Hi, Ian. Welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, Sam. How are you? Thanks for having me on. We're doing good. You've argued lots of cases before the Supreme Court. They have spent much of the last four years um, dealing with cases either involving Trump policies or the president himself. You have said recently in an article that you think the court would want to take a deep breath in a Biden presidency. Explain what you meant by that. Sure. I think the court has spent a, a large chunk of the last four years uh, adjudicating really difficult issues and often under um, extreme time pressure. I mean that in two two particular senses. First, there's been a lot of emergency litigation. So if you imagine over the last few months, uh, um, litigation over the election, uh, over COVID, um, litigation involving the census, litigation involving the uh, starting up of the federal death penalty again. Uh, immigration litigation involving things like DACA and remain in Mexico that has forced the court to address very difficult, important legal questions on very short time frame. And so the court has had a very busy emergency docket. And second, the court has had a docket where it's been forced to answer a lot of fundamental questions about how our government works that it's never had to answer before. So for example, can the House of Representatives subpoena the president? Can a state like uh, like the Manhattan Attorney General or Manhattan District Attorney investigate the president while he's a sitting president? Uh, can the House get access to grand jury material like that used in Robert Mueller's investigation? So those are questions. Some of them have come up in other in other administrations before. So um, there was a subpoena to Harriet Myers in connection with one investigation from the House. There was a subpoena to Eric Holder in connection with the Fast and Furious litigation. But those, uh, those cases have all gone away before they've gotten to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court has had to address those questions, and they really do get to fundamental separation of powers questions. What's the relationship between Congress and the president and the courts? And the court usually prefers not to answer those questions, to leave those to constitutional law scholars. And instead, in this administration, has really been forced to wrestle with those. And I think in that situation, they really would prefer a term or two where the questions are easier, they have a little more time, they kind of get to take a deep breath. So Ian, you defended challenges to the Affordable Care Act when you were Obama's acting solicitor general. And earlier this month, the court heard the latest challenge to Obamacare. Justices Roberts and Kavanaugh seemed okay with keeping most of the law intact. While you can't always predict how the court will rule based on oral arguments, what do you think the court will do, especially in light of the fact that new Justice Barrett wrote that now famous law review in 2012, picking apart the 2012 Affordable Care Act ruling? Well, the key point, of course, is that it's very difficult to predict based on oral argument, and, and uh, that's a hazardous way to make a living. That said, I will say um, that 
it did seem an oral argument, just as you said, that justices, that Justice Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice seemed sympathetic, and that the the three uh, more liberal justices also did. So I think uh, there was reason for optimism for those who are defending the Affordable Care Act. I think that makes sense and, and sort of consistent with what I might have thought going in for at least two reasons. First, I think the legal challenges um, are not that strong. They they rely on a view that uh, the Congress that amended the act um, also would have expected the act to fall if, um, if, if its amendment were struck down. And that seems like a very strained legal theory to me. But I also think perhaps just as important is a court, the court's basic philosophy of being very hesitant to cause major, major disruptions. And there's no doubt that striking down the Affordable Care Act um, in general would cause a major disruption with millions of Americans losing access to health care, and particularly so given that COVID um, is, is running rampant. And then I would say particularly so given that we have not had major legislation coming out of Congress. And so a fix to striking down the Affordable Care Act would not be easy. And so I think the court, in addition to recognizing perhaps the, the weakness of the legal theory, would be very hesitant to do something that's going to have that level of disruption for our country. So again, very hesitant to predict. I don't know how it's coming out, but I could see it easily coming out the way you've described based on argument and these other considerations. Ian, right now, uh, President-elect Biden is announcing uh, some of his first cabinet selections. I don't see the attorney general being announced, but obviously that is being called one of his most important picks for many reasons, um, not the least of which is many consider the present administration's treatment of the Department of Justice you know, very flawed. They consider uh, William Barr to have acted in a very partisan manner, and they consider the attorney general's post to have been used very politically. Um, some names that we've seen in the last few days rumored to be the next AG are DNC chair, former labor secretary under Obama, Tom Perez. We've seen uh, the name of former Massachusetts governor, Deval Patrick, um, Sally Yates, former deputy AG, also Senator Doug Jones, without giving us the benefit of your guesses as to which of those, if any, are accurate. Can you comment on, um, having worked in the Justice Department yourself, how important the position of AG is, especially coming from the election cycle we just came from and the administration we just came from, and in light of President-elect Biden's stated attempts to heal the country. How important is the AG's role in that? I think, I think it really is critically important. Um, the attorney general sets the tone, um, it sets the tone for law enforcement in the country and really is the face of law for federal law enforcement. And so I think it's critically important. And I think that for really two main reasons. First, I think it's very important that the country believe that the Justice Department is operating free from partisan political influence. And no one can set that tone better for good or for worse than the attorney general. And so I think that President Biden's pick for attorney general is really critical to sending the message to the country that the Justice Department is free of all political and partisan influence. The second thing is that I think it sends the message internally to the career officials at the Justice Department that, again, the Justice Department is going to operate free from political influence. Um, we have had instances over the last couple of years of, of high-profile career officials resigning from the Justice Department in protest. And so I think that, um, I think that 
President Biden's pick for attorney general will send a strong message to the career people about how he views the Justice Department, how he believes that uh, I, that it that should be a, um, above partisan and political influence and, and try to send that message to both the public and the career officials that this is how we're going to how he's going to run things in the Biden administration. He is Ian Gershon going from Jenner and Block. Ian, thank you so much for your time here in Chicago and have a happy holiday season. Great. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And again, thanks for having me on. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Our final guest on Legal Faceoff before the legal grab bag, she's an associate at Catton, Much & Rosenman, and she's joining us to talk about the virtual legal clinic in the Asian community. Erica Yang with us on Legal Faceoff. Hi, Erica. Welcome. Hi, I'm happy to join. So, Erica, you are a private credit attorney at Catton, and in June, you founded Lawyers Helping Our Community, which is a virtual clinic focused on assisting Chicago's Chinatown business community. What led up to you founding the clinic? Yeah, sure. So um, my co-chair and I um, had volunteered at the Chinatown Pro Bono Legal Clinic um, since we went to law school at the University of Chicago. So during the pandemic, um, the legal clinics, um, a lot of the legal clinics in town were not taking walk-in clients. But at the same time, um, the Asian community has faced unique challenges due to COVID, um, such as racism, xenophobia, harassment, and their businesses have also suffered. Um, as you know, not many people are eating at the restaurants in Chinatown or shopping at stores. Um, and on top of that, uh, many in the community have language barriers that make it difficult for them to access other pro bono clinics. So um, my friend and I, who is another attorney at Kirkland and Alice, we saw a need for a virtual clinic to help uh, to offer legal help. Um, that is why uh, we um, we contacted Chicago Volunteer Legal Services. Um, because we had worked with them in the past on Chinatown pro bono projects, and they were very supportive about uh, partnering with us. Erica, you mentioned racism as a motivating factor. We've certainly seen a rise in racism over the last few years, and particularly during the pandemic against uh, the Asian community and particularly the Chinese community, you know, and mm. it all starts from President Trump when you hear him use terms like the China virus and uh, the Kung Fu flu that's resulted in 
acts of racism and bigotry towards Asians. How did that affect your desire to start this outreach program? Um, yeah, sure. So um, I think we definitely face um, racism against Asian Americans, especially um, Chinese Americans. Um, and then the COVID sort of like makes it more severe. Um, so it is part of it is it is, you know, our desire to sort of um, let people know that, you know, Asian Americans also need help. And then um, and then also like against the racism. Right. And then um, but right now um, we are focusing on mostly uh, civil legal matters, uh, not so much, you know, um, related to like hate crimes um, or criminal issues. But that is one issue that we are looking into. So, Erica, you currently have about 60 volunteer attorneys and law students and about 30 clients. Um, how has it been going? Are you continuing to add more attorneys um, to assist with the clinic? And what are the biggest challenges that the clinic has given that you are operating in COVID? Um, sure. So um, we recruit attorney volunteers and law students through uh, various avenues, um, such as various bar associations, social media, school networks, and word of mouth. Um, and um, I think the biggest issue we have um, right now is, um, you know, um, we wanted to definitely welcome more volunteer attorneys. Um, we have, you know, a fantastic group of volunteer attorneys, but with our uh, growth of like client base, um, we definitely welcome more attorneys in Chicagoland um, to help our community or even out of state. Um, yeah, so our uh, sign, up web, sign up page for our volunteers is www.cbls.org-alhawk-volunteer. So we welcome more um, attorneys to help our community. Erica, pro bono work and volunteer work, um, similar to what you're doing in the legal field, is so important. And it really is so important to, I think, young lawyers who increasingly want to not just do good legal work and bill a lot and make a lot of money, but giving something back and adding to social justice is important to them. Could you speak to what you're seeing from um, some of the volunteers and some of the law students and younger attorneys that are helping you out? Um, sure. Yeah. So um, in addition to helping our clients, um, we really value our volunteers' help and we're always thinking about how to give back to them. So um, in addition to um, client help, the clinic also gives law students and even younger undergrad students who are interested in law opportunities uh, to assist attorneys gain experience with research and writing and provide an avenue for networking and mentoring about half of our volunteers are law students um, from local law schools um, to whom we provide mentorship and field experience. So what's next, Erica? So you're, this clinic is really um, has been created for purposes of serving a COVID-related need. Do you see this clinic continuing after the pandemic is over in some shape or form? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think this clinic starts with COVID-19, but 
it doesn't end with COVID-19. So um, we definitely see this clinic, you know, we have seen a lot of demand and need. Um, and then besides the individual cases, um, we have done some business education programs for people in the community who may not speak English fluently and people aren't always aware of their rights. And it is important to educate the community about the resources they have at their disposal. Um, and we also think that small business owners in the Chinese American community are in much need of the of education. So um, that is why you know we we um, aim to continue this program, um, and then we wanted to you know continue helping the individuals and small business owners in our community. She's Erica Yang, an associate at Catton Mutual and Rosamond. Thank you so much for your time here on WGN. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's time for the legal grab bag here on Legal Face Off. Thanks to Rich and Tina. Thanks to Emily and Gabby and Ben. My name what a show, Sam, by the way. We put the legal in legal face off today. Look at those. We had like three former Supreme Court clerks, solicitor generals, deputy AGs, and now we got Zelms, the highest of them all, the, you know, the biggest lawyer out there. Robert Zelms joining us from Manning and Cass. He's a partner down there in Phoenix. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. And we saved the best for last. Tiffany Elking is the president of Elking Consulting. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. So an attorney as well. It should be noted Tiffany's an attorney as well, or former attorney. She got smart and, uh, you know, got out of the actual practice of law, right? Well, I'm still an attorney. I just do a lot more political work. Gotcha. Gotcha. So per usual, everybody on this panel is much smarter than me. So that's the way we're going to roll through. And that's the way it always is. Seven topics. And we're going to keep things moving here. Our first topic, I wonder, hmm, should we begin with Trump and a lawsuit, perhaps? I mean, I feel like we cover this team extensively today, but we have to we have to get our guest perspective on the dominant legal story, of course, the last couple of weeks, which is the continued uh, saga of Trump's campaign attempting to overturn the results of the election. Uh, We just talked to the attorney who represented the uh, state against Trump in Pennsylvania. Talk about what a what a mess it was. uh, Rudy Giuliani's appearance. Um, He fired one of the lead attorneys over the weekend. Uh, Last night, another one of the attorneys, Jenna Ellis, was on TV saying that, you know, this is a landslide for Trump and the Supreme Court is going to inevitably overturn these decisions. So they're still, you know, holding out hope that legally they've got some legs to stand on. Um, Tina, I mean, is there anything more that needs to be said about what a train wreck this is legally? We could spend many, many weeks talking about what a train wreck this is. But, you know, at the end of the day, we've got a president-elect who is transitioning and has his team that he's handpicking. As every day goes by, we hear more and more people that he's picking for his cabinet and for his administration. And, um, you know, what's interesting is that, I mean, we're never going to get a concession out of Trump, but I would have expected him to be a lot more vocal about what Biden's been up to over the last few days than he has been. So I think all of this is just going to end up not leading anywhere except for a lot of dollars being spent needlessly. 
Rob, you hit up the uh, legal malpractice team at your firm. You're one of the foremost legal malpractice attorneys really in the country. So my question to you is when you see the performance of these lawyers in court, right? I mean, we all we just discussed uh, in detail how Giuliani did in court and what a mess he was. He didn't know some of the legal terms and the standard of review, for example. When you see that in the context of cases that you deal with in legal malpractice, is this a per se almost deviation of the standard of care, especially when you consider the stakes involved? How is it possible that the president's lawyer acted this way before a federal judge? Well, it's hard to have a legal malpractice case if your client's case is never going to be successful in the first place, right? Uh-huh. And this is this is not about politics. I, I'll go on Facebook, and then when this whole thing started, people will say, you know what, we're going to get the election overturned. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, these are these are not lawyers, because for those of us that are lawyers, we know how incredibly difficult it is to go into court and prove essentially fraud, which is what they're banking on here. Right. Um, it's almost it's very, very difficult to prove fraud. And the, the fact that this is what they're sort of hanging their hat on to me is sort of the death knell of the case from the very from the very beginning. And also, when you're when you're a lawyer, you look at these types of things from a different perspective than than what I'll call lay people, because we know when you go into court, you don't go into court and, and speculate and say, you know what, I have this theory. Let me judge, prove it to you. Let me go on a fishing expedition. You got to go to court with all of your evidence ready to go and, and to establish what we call a prima facie case, right? In order for it to allow to proceed. And I've never seen that. So regardless of your politics, regardless how you view this thing, I, I knew there was never a chance in you know what that this was going to succeed. All right. So, Tiffany, you deal with elected officials. You advise them. There's obviously a huge political component to this. And to Rob's point, while legally these claims are being dismissed across the country quickly and loudly by federal judges, uh, politically, though, there still seems to be a lot of support for these theories. You know, I've got some friends. I told my trainer I would mention him today because I have these discussions with him and I tell him, listen, you can say whatever you want. As Rob just said in a press conference at the end of a landscaping driveway, if you're Giuliani, once you're in court, you have to prove the evidence. Where is the evidence? But Tiffany, 70 million people voted for Trump. He's still got a lot of support out there. Do you think it matters to his supporters uh, that legally, evidentially, from an evidence perspective, there's nothing to these cases? Or do you think they just chalk it up to another conspiracy against the president? Well, I mean, first of all, recounts just are very rarely successful anyways. But I don't really know that his supporters um, are looking at the specifics of the legal um, case and thinking that he doesn't have a an actual case. I think they, they still support him and that they want to move forward no matter what, because they think that that means he used all avenues possible. Topic two, Rich, we'll kick it, uh, kick it back to you. The uh, Kyle Rittenhouse situation, he's now a free man, and uh, he was posing with John Pierce and Ricky Schroeder right after his release. Yeah, Rittenhouse, of course, is the shooter in Kenosha who uh, left his home, decided to grab a gun and get himself in the middle of defending businesses in Kenosha, even though uh, he wasn't licensed to carry a gun in Wisconsin and shot two people, shot and killed two people, um, was charged with homicide and was bailed out, as you mentioned. Uh, 
there was a $2 million bond posted for him by some notable people. Uh, Rick, Rick Schroeder, former uh, Silver Spoon star, um, uh, and also the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, put up some money for him. Also, another person uh, who's an attorney uh, put up some money for his defense, and that individual has been, um, I would just say, prominent in the news for a bunch of other reasons. But Tina, it, it, it's interesting to look at, you know, the way that some people are spinning this story. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse has almost become a folk hero for many on the right who looked at those protests and some of the you know movements we've seen in the wake of some of the uh, social justice movements as a hero, uh, especially you know as a Second Amendment hero. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you're absolutely right, Rich, that there are a lot of folks on the right who just have a very different narrative about what happened, meaning that, you know, they said he has a right to bear arms, that he ended up actually shooting these people in self-defense because they were chasing after him. And it's just, it, it's very interesting, but it's very symptomatic of the bigger picture, which is we we see di very different narratives on both sides with regard to what's been happening since May. And um, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, I just I'm very troubled by how he got out of prison, the way in which I mean, obviously, you know, when you postpone, you get out. But when you look at the what when you look at the background of his lawyer, I mean, there was like a five page article about all the things that his attorney has done and, and what a what a very questionable character he is. And it, it's just a very troubling narrative and, and very much, a, a, you know, symptomatic and emblematic of what's going on in this country right now. Tiffany, the bond process is there for a reason. It applies equally, you know, to all, depending on what the judge sets it at. But feels kind of wrong in this case. Feels feels there, there feels something wrong about uh, this person getting celebrity friends to bail him out of jail when two people uh, are dead just, a, you know, from him shooting them a few, few weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if I think when you're looking at some of the details of even his attorney's background, though, you can see that um, it, it's a very different mindset. I mean, like, I don't know if you've read some of the text messages that his attorney has set to, sent to his ex-wife, um, one of which said, beg for money, say my name. Um, and so that to me was one of the most disturbing things. Um, and this is who is defending the young gentleman. Yeah, Rob, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, you know, what's funny is I, I read the article about his lawyer, and uh, it's not uncommon to read articles about how pro high-profile lawyers getting into trouble and being accused of some salacious things. But as I, I was, as I was reading that article, I noticed that his law firm had a bunch of debts, which, again, is not uncommon. And now scrolling down, looking at the debts, and one of the debts was $65 million owed to a hedge fund. How did that happen? Yeah, I, I, there should be a there should be a story, an article about how a law firm owes sixty five million dollars right. to a fund, right? Well, something about him owing a million dollars in taxes as well. I'm like, I don't. How does that happen? And how does that never get addressed? I don't even know how you can. And how about maybe instead of bailing a rent house, um, I don't know, use some of that money to pay off your debts. Maybe that's a good place to start. We'll start a GoFundMe account. Yeah, yeah maybe go. Rick Schroeder can do some sort of a charitable event in his honor. Yeah, when I, 
It used to be Ricky, though, right? He changed the Rick when he got. It used to be Ricky when he was in Silver Spoons, but then wasn't he NYPD Blue, and then he became Rick Schroeder? Yeah, that's right. Oh, he'll always be Ricky to me. Sorry, I was muted there. I muted myself to keep my thoughts to myself. Um, An LA judge has granted judgment in the favor of Russell Simmons. This is on a rape lawsuit filed by a Jane Doe who allegedly Tina was just outside the uh, the window of limitations. Yeah, uh, Russell Simmons, of course, um, R&B hip hop mogul. And for years, there have been rumors and actual allegations of sexual misconduct. Uh, This one involves an allegation of rape that occurred in 1988. What happened in this case is the woman did not come forward until well beyond the 10 year statute of limitations. And there was some uh, mistakes that the judge said were made by her legal team. She didn't show up and he gave her two weeks and her attorneys didn't show up. Uh, one of her attorneys was was disbarred, actually. Um, but I think the bigger question this goes to, we've covered this extensively on the show with a lot of legislators and um, sexual assault um, advocates, victim advocates, is this whole idea of whether these statute of limitations make sense anymore. And in fact, in the, in, the, in the wake of the Me Too era in the last two or three years, many states have either gone done away with or uh, extended the statute of limitations. New York, for example, doubled it from five to 10. Illinois did a similar thing. The idea being, Tina, that it's obviously very difficult for victims of sexual assault, victims of rape to come forward. Um, the victims are often attacked, their characters are attacked, as we saw in this case. Uh, Russell Simmons came out and denied ever you know, meeting this woman. Um, and these, these victims are frequently attacked. So you understand why it takes them a long time to come forward. So should these statute limitations continue to be extended so that women can come forward, women and men who are victims can come forward no matter how long it takes? The problem with that idea, on the other hand, of course, is that you want there to be some modicum of reliability and evidence. And the longer that people, the longer that people wait to come forward, the harder it is to keep evidence and for people to stay, you know, people die, evidence goes away, all that kind of thing. So it's a tough, it's a tough balance. Rich, I think part of the problem in this case was this this woman blew the statute of limitations by 30 years, right? right. The incident happened in 1988. And it's funny because I was reading the article on it and I thought to myself, how'd she find a lawyer to take this case? And then I got to the bottom of the article and it said, oh, by the way, her lawyer was disbarred. Right, so, right. I, I mean, I, I think that's very telling. So a lot of the statute of limitations in the country have been extended for like uh, uh, kids that were molested and they they didn't learn or become aware of the molestation um, until they had counseling as an adult. In those situations, I get it. But in a case like this, where you have an adult uh, who, even though it's terrible, what what happened to her, I think 30 years is really excessive. I mean, uh, there's a public policy element, too. You know what I mean? And so in this particular case, I would have a problem with extending the statute of limitations. I would agree that extending the statute of limitations beyond like five years or maybe even beyond 10 years is fine. But as you said, Rob, when you start getting into 30 years, it's it's a really, really tough thing. And I also think, you know, as you said, Rich, sometimes people forget things happen, people pass away and so forth. But I think one of the things that balances and tips the scale in the other direction on that is the fact that people vividly often vividly remember these the these terrible incidents to the point where 
things get burned in their memory in a way that folks wouldn't necessarily remember other things. So it, it, it is a delicate balance to strike. You know, I just don't think that you can even have a statute of limitations on when a woman can come forward and say that she was raped at some point in time. I think throughout your lifetime, you change so much as a person and maybe someone does not feel like they are able to come forward when they're at a different stage in their life. And so, I mean, I know that it seems unfair sometimes, but if someone rapes someone, they rape someone. It doesn't matter that crime doesn't go away, even if it's past a certain amount of time. Yeah. And to that point, you know, Tiffany, all we're talking about is the ability to file a lawsuit and for it to survive and go to a jury. If the evidence isn't there because witnesses are not reliable or they've died or they're not credible, so be it. Right. But at least I think the case should go to a trier of fact to determine whether the time period of 30 years makes the evidence untrustworthy. Topic number four involves the president, Donald Trump, trying to use the fair use defense. Tina, this was over uh, a song copyright issue. He tried to use Electric Avenue and thought he could get away with it. Yes. So um, we've covered this story often on Legal Faceoff, particularly during the Trump administration, where he's been using other people's songs. Some pretty famous people like Tom Petty, Neil Young and others. And this time um, he used Eddie Grant's song, Electric Avenue. He actually has filed a motion to dismiss the case on the basis of fair use. And what he's argued is somewhat creative at the end of the day. I don't think it holds water necessarily as as an IP lawyer, but his version of the song is Electric Carnival. And what he's done is he's taken the theme music and he's taken sort of the general vibe of Electric Avenue and he's juxtaposed it with a derogatory cartoon of Biden. And what he's argued is that the resulting piece is transformative and is different from the purpose of the original song. Um, He also says, and this is the typical argument you see when someone is trying to argue fair use in these types of cases, that he's not supplanting or trying to replace the market or somehow push out the original version in terms of revenues or, or demand. Um, What I think is really interesting here is that at the end of the day, cutting through all this is what we've seen with a lot of other artists and political campaigns. Sometimes these artists really don't want their songs associated with particular political figures. And copyright is a great avenue as a body of law. It is very much pro-creator and pro-owner of the copyright. Um, And it's a great vehicle oftentimes to stop this type of use. And I think that's really what's going on here. Well, if nothing else, it definitely reminded me of some great times in the 80s rocking out to uh, Eddie Grant. And I'm trying to think of the other song. He had Electric Avenue, and there was one more song. Tiffany, way, beyond, way before your time. Zalms, help me out. What was the other Eddie Grant song? I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I barely know Electric Avenue. But, you know, Tina uh, makes an interesting point about these lawsuits uh, against other politicians. I had no idea this was even a thing. Every time I enter a courtroom, I have Metallica enter Sandman. <laughs> and I might not be able to do that now. So thanks for letting me know this is a good topic for me. Sam, I just remember I want to rock down to Electric Avenue and then we'll take you higher. It's only after you get to Electric Avenue does Eddie take you higher. And I, I didn't really understand how they use I haven't seen the Biden animation, the cartoon. I, I, I was trying to figure out as I was reading it how they actually use it and implement it. But it sounds pretty screwy. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was really confusing. 
It sounds you know, really kind of, um, you know, I would say pejorative from what I could gather from what I saw with it. I didn't actually see it or hear it. Um, but the way it was being described sounded pretty pejorative. But, you know, that comes with the territory, I think. I heard Trump's new uh, pep rally or political rally theme song is going to be ABBA, Take a Chance on Me. <laughs> That's coming probably in litigation soon, too. Rich, you know that song, right? You used to play that all the time. I know it well from my days in the ABBA cover band in the in the early '80s. And then maybe after the uh, Biden, you know, inauguration, he can, you know, use "Don't Stop Believing" Trump if he wanted wants to go that route as well. Um, Naya Rivera in Lake Peru, uh, very sad story of death back in July, and now a wrongful death lawsuit has come against Ventura County in California. Yeah, so her ex-husband has actually filed um, a wrongful death suit against Ventura, um, as well as Parks and Recreation. Um, what we're finding is something... The actual that Parks and Recreation, not the TV show, right? You're talking... Not the, no, we are not suing the TV show creators. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any event, this is a very sad story where we all remember from July where Naya Rivera was with her son in a rented boat in Lake Peru. Um, apparently hit some choppy water. She was out of the boat. Her son was in the boat. And apparently her son recalls hearing her mo- his mother cry for help. Um, then he couldn't see her anymore. And he was rescued pretty quickly after the incident happened. But what we've come to find out is that the boat was not outfitted with some pretty basic life-saving equipment, nor was there a ladder or rope or anchor. Um, and apparently there were over 20 mile an hour winds gusting that day. Um, And apparently she was not warned that there is some level of danger on that lake. And apparently a couple of dozen people over the years have actually drowned there. So it's a very sad story. If I had to predict, this is going to settle out of court. But, um, you know, it's it's a really very sad story about a a child losing his mom and under circumstances that I think at least in a certain respect would have been prevented. Yeah. So, you know, from a legal perspective, obviously very sad story. And as a, a Gleek myself, my, my love of Glee is well known on, on this show. My, my daughter grew up watching Glee. Uh, very, very hard to, to, to think of her death. But from a legal perspective, I mean, Rob and I defend these kind of cases all the time. And obviously these are allegations, right? The, the, the response will be a couple things. Um, how did you not know that going out on a boat is dangerous? How do you not know that you know, not wearing a life jacket is incredibly dangerous. Inevitably, when you anyone who's rented a boat knows that you sign um, oh, even I the most ru- yeah even the most rudimentary you know uh, waivers uh, she had to have signed. Um, you know, so there's obviously a high degree of comparative fault here that will be asserted by the uh, by the defendants. Um, I was surprised to hear about the 26 drownings. I mean, that will be if that gets out ever. Um, that I think is a damaging uh, uh, piece of, of evidence. But Rob, you defend these cases, similar cases to this. What are your thoughts? And, and that's right in your backyard, obviously, or backyard of, of some of your members of your firm. Yeah. So the, the funny thing is, whenever I hear a story like this, and this is um, sort of the side effect of being a lawyer, particularly a defense lawyer, is when I first heard about the story, the first thing I thought about was there's going to be some sort of claim, there's going to be some sort of lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the first thing that popped in my mind was to what extent she signed a waiver. She had to have signed a waiver. 
Mm-hmm. California, I think the waivers are, are much stronger than they are in a lot of different states. So that's going to be interesting to see how um, her, her lawyers and the estate's lawyers maneuver around that. But I would assume that they're going to throw in some gross negligence type causes of action. I know gross negligence and, and claims involving punitive damages and really, really egregious conduct can can circumvent waivers in some states. So it's going to be an interesting case, but I agree with Tina. This is uh, whoever the insurers are, and there's going to be multiple layers of insurers, including probably some sort of county or governmental entity risk pool. They're going to want to put this thing to bed. They're going to want to resolve it quickly. Yeah, again, Tiffany, you're an expert in dealing with crises and dealing with, uh, you know, extra legal ramifications of actions. If the defendants here were your clients, would you advise them, even though legally they might have a strong case, that this is a case to get rid of fairly quickly before uh, more people know about it? Yeah, I mean, I would, but at the same point in time, how hard is it? Why can't they just put up some signs? Why do they not have any life jackets on the boat? Why do they not have any rope? I mean, to me, those are some things that are just so basic that I think that they should have had. Topic number six, two more to go here on Legal Grab Bag on Legal Face Off. Uh, I'll just read the title here, and this sounds like something I would have to do to get into law. I've read... <laughs> who flunked bar exam gets prison time for creating law firms and practicing law. This is incredible. Yeah. Sometimes you can't make this stuff up. So imagine a 2014 law grad who decides to take the bar, flunks it twice. And because of that is not licensed to practice law. So instead decides to set up two fake law firms, decides to grab some stock photos, um, set up two dummy websites and says, hey, here are the partners in my law firm, steals her roommate's identity, as well as the identity of one of her law school classmates, and actually takes her roommate's um, personal information and uses it to open bank accounts and lines of credit to fund a fake law firm. Oh, and by the way, she makes appearances in court and yada, yada, and she gets away with it for a number of years. So finally, the law caught up with her And she was sentenced to four and a half years in prison, $14,000 in restitution, three years of supervision after she gets released. And, oh, she's going to get mental health treatment as well. It's actually a pretty sad story, but um, it's remarkable how we continue to hear stories like this. The facts change, but I think the theme remains the same. It's it's legally. What are these people thinking? It's legally blonde meets single white females, what it is. But I'm always like, as much as I think these stories are crazy, I'm always impressed by the audacity of people. I'm a little bit jealous of people. I think I've got, you know, a lot of confidence and big cojones, but sometimes (laughs) what these people do and get away with, I sit there in awe of them. Like, how could you do that and get away with it for as long as you did? It's, it actually takes some degree of, you know, incredible character. And I'm a little bit, you know, jealous of people like that. Tiffany, am I? At least planning, at least planning and strategy. I mean, yeah, I, mean I have to realize that she needed to put somebody that had a law license on the website. I mean, right. she, she used information from her classmate and I would love to know what her classmate, if her, if her classmate knew that she was using her information and not telling them. Rob, again, legal malpractice. How does that fit into what uh, Roberta was doing here? Well, it, it's the unauthorized practice of law, so I don't even think anyone can really sue her for that because she's not right. even. But you know, the first thing I thought was, 
you know, she failed the bar exam twice. And I thought to myself, man, if she failed two more times, she would catch up to Rich Langhoff. Right, right. Said, had she taken, had she taken that mentality to do all this fake law firm stuff and put all directly all the energy <laughs> and attention in the studying for the bar exam, she could have avoided all this. Right. Yeah, we wouldn't be mentioning her. So she made she made legal face off. <laughs> Lastly, we have a list of very very important cases. These are all Thanksgiving lawsuits put together by Saunders Walsh. SaundersWalsh.com. You've got Jacobs v. Kent. You've got Greenberg smoked turkeys versus Good Cook. Tina, the list is endless. The list is endless, and what I would love to do is, I mean, I'm happy to kick things off. Um, we have a number of really crazy cases here, and I'd love for us to all sort of go round robin and share with um, the listeners what our favorite case was. I mean, a lot of these were great, but I still have to think that my favorite case is the one where, um, you know, there was an, an unidentifiable form in the bushes and um, it was the plaintiff who not a, not was a somehow out hunting with friends. Okay, I get that. And then somehow ends up wearing red, is in the bushes, and decides to start gobbling um, and then gets shot because the person who shot him thought it was, he was a turkey. Um, I, I love that story. I think it's hilarious. And I think that's yeah. how you attract other turkeys when you're a hunter. You yeah. gobble and you simulate the gobbling. That's so so. I think the defendant should have been aware that there might be a hunter out there gobbling to try to attract her. Well, I, yeah, that was a great story. On, on the less humorous side, I got in a, in a rabbit hole last night, like maybe 2 a.m. I started reading these stories about the guy who shot up his family in the Thanksgiving dinner. And I literally spent about an hour watching every YouTube video and, and taking a deep dive into the story because I was just fascinated. So the story goes, you know, this guy was invited. Actually, he, he wasn't invited over. He invited himself, if you believe some of the allegations, for Thanksgiving dinner. He was like a cousin or something and, uh, you know, wasn't eating, went outside by himself for 20 minutes, came back and shot and killed his twin sisters, one of whom was pregnant, and then shot and killed a six-year-old, his six-year-old niece or cousin that was sleeping in her bedroom. Um, in advance of the dinner, some of the family members were worried about him showing up and said words like, I hope he, I hope Paul doesn't come and kill us tonight. Um, so that's obviously tragic. The legal part of it is as a result of these shootings and he survived, he, he, you know, he ran away and they caught him in the keys like hours later, there was competing lawsuits by the families um, and his own family, the shooter's own family actually sued the other family who who lost some family members and said that they were negligent for inviting him over. Just stop and think about that for a second. You lost your six-year-old or you lost your sisters, and yet you're to blame for inviting over a killer because you should have known that he was a killer. I mean, we see lawsuits like this all the time. Um, by, you know, criminals. And it just boggles your mind to think that he had the gall to sue the victim's families for inviting him over. Crazy stuff. Tough one. On that humorous note, Tiffany, what was your favorite story? 
Well, one of mine was the one about Georgia, because I happen to be in Georgia right now, um, about the parents deciding to give their seven children tattoos on Thanksgiving. Um, And one of the children did not get a tattoo because he was only 10, um, but they were charged with reckless conduct, um, which is just the whole thing is just I, I, I just can't even imagine. I can't. How old were the other children? I didn't even know that that was a thing, that reckless conduct was a, uh, a thing for tattooing minors. Rob, I, we, Rob, we can't see the various tattoos you have below the neck, thankfully, but you've got dozens, I know. What was your favorite story taking us home on Thanksgiving wrap-up? Yeah, I have, I have both sleeves uh, all the way to my wrist with tattoos. No, yes. Um, you know what's funny is the, the one article that I thought was interesting and uh, and all of you are going to think this was the most boring one of them all was the copyright infringement about how to cook a turkey. Oh, the <laughs> recipe? Yeah. No, not yeah. the recipe. The directions for cooking. How to, to cook it. Right. I was fascinated by that. I, I mean, I don't do copyright infringement. I thought to myself, you know what is our directions to cook something? Is that? Very is, tough. Is that a copyright? I, I, I do copyright. It's very tough when you're talking about something like forms or recipes, because what copyright protects is the expression, not the underlying matter. Right. So, you know, that's why, like, for example, a, a recipe compilation could be protectable because it's the way you put all of the different recipes together. But I mean, unless it was a really elaborate recipe, you're better off trying to protect a recipe with something like trade secret and not publishing a recipe. Just think about how brazen the second turkey manufacturer is, right? There's this one turkey manufacturer that lists directions as to how to cook the turkey. And then I start my own company and I, I, I copy their directions as to how to cook a turkey. I mean, that's brazen, but it's actually very genius. I came to the conclusion it's not copyright infringement because it's more procedural you know, and my understanding is if you follow a procedure or how to do something, that's not creative enough to be copyright. All right, Latino, let's wrap up. We'll go around the horn and ask everyone to name their favorite Thanksgiving Day food. Tina, go ahead. Start. Stuffing. Stuffing's delicious. <laughs> Tiffany? Pie. <laughs> pumpkin pie? Is that the thing? I don't like uh, I like pumpkin pie, but I'm like more cherry pie. Even though that's not as traditional. Rob, is there anything that you don't like at Thanksgiving dinner? I've seen you go to town and you you can put that stuff away. So my favorite thing is the simplest thing of all, and that's mashed potatoes. You can't have Thanksgiving. Imagine, so if you took away stuffing and you took away pie, you took everything away, you've got to have the turkey. But if you don't have mashed potatoes or the turkey, you basically have ruined Thanksgiving. Sam, what do you got? Gravy is my favorite part of Thanksgiving, to be perfectly honest. But, um, I mean, I could take turkey. That'd be easy. But my favorite part about Thanksgiving is actually leftovers the next day. Cold, warm, whatever. Count me in. You know, I'm from Canada, so I don't know anything about these traditions you call Thanksgiving. But I, I do love some stuffing, Tina. I'm there with you. I could eat I could eat my weight in stuffing. But I, I'll never understand some of the, uh, what the hell's that little marshmallow thing you guys put on your, there's some <laughs> dish with marshmallows? What the hell's that all about? On the top of that. <laughs> on the top of the mac and cheese or something? No, we don't do that. And then there's the uh I'll never get cranberry, like the the you know, comes out looking like a freaking can. Like what 
Oh, I What's love homemade cranberries. cranberries. I'm a big can person. And yeah. who decided green bean casseroles? Who decided green bean casserole had to be part of Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah. I, I'm Not part of mine. Bizarre. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy your time, whoever you're with. If there's five people or 30 people, we won't tell. We won't rat you out. Just be safe. And uh, thanks to Tiffany. Thanks to Robert for joining us here. For Rich and Tina, my name is Sam. We'll talk to you in December right here on Legal Face Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.